0: Core exercises train the muscles in your pelvis, lower back, hips, and abdomen to work in harmony. The Bible affirms that bodily discipline has some value. It is a good thing to do core exercises to keep fit. But did you know that spiritual fitness matters more? The gospel authors, including John, kept a detailed summary of what Jesus said. We can study and practice what Jesus outlines. We can actually learn from the ultimate trainer, Jesus. If we will pay attention, he will teach And tell each of us how to strengthen our core so get ready to build spiritual muscle so let's review a minute if we can one heart I love him one way I trust him one truth I believe his word and one life my very life is in him and that fourth one I've actually put it in the center my life is in him because it's the centerpiece from which all the others flow. So right in the middle is our center, which we're going to talk about today. These are the non-negotiables, the defining characteristics, the defining virtues, and by the way, our very lifeline until Jesus returns. And so we're going to uh, jump into number four this morning. How many of you have uh, been to Blanchard Springs Cavern? Okay, that's my kind of spelunking, because you take an elevator down to the, uh, to the cave, you know what I mean? So this morning, we're going to do something that actually is uh, kind of like that. We're going to take an elevator down to a deeper level, because what I'm going to share with you is, uh, it's going to be similar to what we've done before, but I'm actually going to show you what's beneath the surface. And I hope that you will come away beginning to understand what this one life principle means in a new and profound way jesus introduced this concept in the upper room discourse when he said i am the way and the truth and here it is the life no one comes to the father but through me now this one life principle is discussed in 23 verses of the upper room discourse and the prayer that follows and it's found in seven passages Three of those passages are in what's called the high priestly prayer. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for the disciples and prays for us and has some prayer requests of his own for the Father. And so what we're going to do is actually look at this prayer and figure out how does it relate to this one life principle. Now, where was this prayer given? we don't know the answer to that it could be that it was prayed in the upper room or it could be a prayer that was prayed en route to the garden where Jesus was betrayed or it could have been prayed in the garden we don't know but it follows right on the heels of what Jesus has been saying in the upper room discourse and interestingly there are three sections in this uh, prayer in verses one through five Jesus has a personal prayer request. He says, Father, here's what I am requesting of you. Then in verses six through 19, he has a prayer request for the apostles, for the 11 who are there, and he says, Father, this is what is is so needed. And then, interestingly, in verses 20 through 26, he actually prays for us. It is interesting that in the beginning verses of all three of those sections, the one life principle shows up. And so what we're gonna do this morning is we're not gonna go through the entire uh, high priestly prayer. We don't have time for that this morning, but we are gonna hit the initial sections that speak into this one life principle. So I'm gonna be reading those passages as you see them on the screen, starting with the first section, John 17, verses one, two, and three. highlight a few details first notice that he said the hour has come in verse 1 the Lord is in charge of timing for example earlier in the book of John in John 7:30, you would read this so they were seeking to seize him but no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come and there's numerous hour has not yet come statements in the book of John in other words Men may have thought we're going to seize him, but that was not Jesus' timetable. It's not time yet. But Jesus is now declaring it is time. Jesus is the one who declares the timetable. He's in charge of the time. He says, glorify. And he says, glorify me that the Son may glorify you. Have you ever thought of praying a prayer like that, glorify me? That sounds a little presumptuous doesn't it what is he asking for well Jesus is about to walk to the cross and he's going to give a display of God's character that is provocative and poignant and arresting and he's saying father if I'm going to do this I'm going to need you to help me help me accomplish what you have appointed for me which will in turn make you look good. We will demonstrate your love and your wisdom and your power by what is going to occur. The Son glorifies the Father by giving eternal life to those who Father has given him, which reveals Father's love and compassion. He says, "The Father has come that the Son may glorify you and give eternal life. The cross is going to be a character display Actually, similar to something that Moses observed. Here's a passage from the Old Testament. This is Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. And this is what was put on display at the time that Moses was given the Ten Commandments. It's also what was put on display when Jesus died on the cross. Let's read it. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. This is Moses. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. What Jesus demonstrated on the cross was the magnificent love the exceeding power the majesty of father that he would give up his son would I do that would you do that and yet he decided I am going to give up my son in order to claim a people for myself that's what was put on display on the cross it is also true that God's justice was put on display because God decided to allow his son to experience what you and I deserve. He allowed Jesus to actually experience what I deserve because of all the things I've done. And he said, no, I'm not going to give that to Jim. I'm going to give that to my son. That's what was put on display on the cross when Jesus died. He says in verse 2, even as you have given him authority, and the word authority is the Greek word exousia, which means both authority and power. He has the right to do, and he has the capacity to do what is ever necessary. He says he's been given authority that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This authority and power makes it possible for Jesus to give eternal life to others. Now, this next statement I'm going to make kind of boggles my mind, but these individuals who are given to Jesus are gifts from the Father. If you know Jesus, you are a gift from Father to Jesus. That's what it says in the verse. You have given him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life so when I was five years old I accepted Jesus because that was a gift now I'm gonna tell you the story of how that happened in my case so I was five I have a younger brother who's three named Tommy and uh, Tommy and I were out in the front yard playing this is in uh, kind of in the country in Tacoma Washington We're on a dead-end street, no traffic or whatever, and Tommy came to me, age three, and said, can I go to Cheryl Golden's house? And I said, sure. And Cheryl lived about two doors down. And so, this can be hard. Uh, So he walked down to Cheryl Golden's driveway, and right about that time, in that day, milk was delivered by a milk truck that came to your door, and right as he passed behind the milk truck the driver jumped in and backed up and I watched my brother get run over and die and I knew I'm responsible I realized that I looked through this as through the eyes of an adult and I realized that I can't let myself say, Jim, you murdered your brother. But who has not lost a loved one and thought about the ways in which you could have done something different and it would have turned out differently. So I knew what my heart has in it. And not too many months later, I was at a vacation Bible school and the speaker, I like to tell people that I accepted Christ at Harvard, Harvard Elementary School, that's where the VBS was. And the speaker was talking about you who are sinners, there is forgiveness. And my heart was desperate for something. I never told my mom or family about it until I was maybe 20 or so. They didn't know this thing that I was carrying around. But uh, I knew in that moment I need forgiveness from Jesus and from God for what I've done. And I prayed to receive Jesus as my savior and it was the real thing, I've never doubted it. I still remember it. I don't know who the speaker was. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. It's gonna be very fun. But in that moment, here's what happened in terms of pullback for the bigger picture. Father said to Jesus, even before the foundation of the world, I'm gonna give you Jim. And then Jesus said, in this moment when he prays, I am going to give him salvation and life. Man, I'm so grateful. And I'm so amazed at what Father did. He said, Jesus, here's a gift for you. And Jesus said, I'm going to give him eternal life. If you know Jesus, you know the circumstances in which that came about. If you know Jesus, you are Father's gift to him. And he has decided to give you eternal life. Now, I I realize that there may be some in this room who would say, well, I'm not really sure, I don't know. Or some who would say, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that. We're going to talk about that later in the service. Now I want to make a sidebar here for a minute. He says, give eternal life. Is it chosen? Do I choose it? Or is it given to me? Now I realize I'm getting into the uh, Calvin Arminian controversy here, and I would not presume to solve this problem in about five minutes, but I'm going to give it a shot. (laughs) The Bible has verses in it that say, Whosoever will may come. In other words, it's a bona fide offer. The Bible also has verses in it that say, Only those whom I have chosen. So here's a couple whosoever will verses. First, Romans 10, 12, and 13 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever... Another verse. Now I'm quoting the King James on this one because I memorized it after I accepted Christ. And uh, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever. In other words, those verses are saying it's a bona fide offer to every person in this room and every person on this planet. Whoever will, whoever wants it, it's yours. But then there are these verses that are the only those whom I have chosen verses. For example, in Acts 13, 48, we read, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That makes it sound like God's choice preceded belief. Here's another one. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That one's actually saying that before this world was created, God decided, I want that Jim Fleming guy. Now, I don't know why he did, but he did. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, even before the creation of all that we know as this world... Jesus said, and God said, mine over you. Jim, could you please explain how can both of these things be true? And my answer is, I don't know. They're in the Bible. (laughs) But I do think there's something interesting that is produced by both of these. If it's a bona fide, real offer to all men then the man who is in hell has only himself to blame for his decision. He rejected a bona fide offer from Jesus. Furthermore, I know that the man who is in heaven has no grounds for pride. I am not going to be able to say, wow, I'm really something. I decided and, you know, look at those in hell and say, ha, why didn't you do what I did? I have no explanation for why I'm there except the graciousness of God. Because scripture affirms both, so do I. I am able to say, whosoever will may come, and I can say it to every person in this room, whosoever will may come. And I can also say that if you come, you have been chosen. Now, I like to illustrate it this way. I want you to imagine a great big giant arch, okay? It starts here, and it goes all the way up over there, and this is the entrance to heaven need to make sure I don't fall down here, okay? And here's the entrance, and I wanna go to heaven, and it says on this side, whosoever will may come, and I'm going, awesome, I choose Jesus, and I walk through this. And then I look back at this big arch, and it says, only those whom I have chosen. The man in hell has only himself to blame, not God, that he didn't choose him and the man in heaven has only God to thank that he's there because he's the one who made it possible in every respect. We good? All right, that's our Calvin Arminius moment there. Verse three, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. The essence of eternal life is is not an endless series of days, it's an intimate, continuous, dynamic relationship with God and his son, Jesus. The essence of eternal life is to be able to say, I know him, and by the way, this word know is a word that in the New Testament and in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is actually used of marital intimacy. In other words, really know. We are going to be known and know him. We are going to experience ultimate closeness with him. And that's the essence of eternal life. If someone says, well, isn't eternal life mean you get to live forever? No, eternality is not the exclusive domain of the saved. Listen to this verse: this is Matthew 25:46. This is Jesus talking. He says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Everybody is going to exist eternally. It's just a question of eternal punishment or eternal life. I wanna illustrate this for you. You can't see it. I'll pull the tape here a bit. But I've got an outlet up here, an electrical outlet. All right? So when someone, and here I'm going to plug this in. When someone comes to Christ, there we go, that's what happens. The light bulb comes on because I'm now connected to the Father, and I'm connected to the Son. Now, it's possible I might go through seasons in which the bulb uh, dims. That's what happened to Peter. Peter, the light was on, but in the day, in fact, the 24 hours after this conversation that Jesus is having in prayer for him, his bulb went down pretty low. 50 days later at Pentecost, his bulb (laughs) went like that. I mean, the life of God was just coursing through his veins. And so, right now, we are connected to, fi- if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we are connected to the, the power, sometimes the Bible uses the image of water, like living water inside of us, we're, we're connected to this power source, this is what happens when someone comes to Christ, and it is true that based upon some factors that we won't discuss, until two weeks. When we talk about the, uh, the peace factor, that's when I'm gonna explain how you can make your light bulb look like that and not like that, okay? But right now, we are connected to this source of power, and a sin nature can dampen our experience of God, but when someone comes to Christ, this is what happens. Basically, they get plugged in, and the light goes on, and the life that is in Christ comes alive inside of them and as they grow as they keep growing that brightness keeps growing and eventually it gets to a place where it's dazzling when we stand in the very presence of Christ in John 17 verses 11 through 12 he begins this section in which he's going to pray for the apostles here's what he says I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus has been their protection. You notice here there's an extension cord. Uh, Here's the power source, which is Father. And Jesus was the extension cord, Giving them the light. So he's saying, I'm going to be leaving. And so I need you, Father, to step in. Basically, what he's saying is this I'm going to be on the cross, so I need you to go direct with them and give them the continued awareness of your presence. And you saw what happened with Peter. There was a brief moment where he looked just like a lost person, but Jesus had prayed for him and he said, I'm praying that even though you're going to stumble, that you'll get back up and you'll strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is asking Father to step in and be their continued power source. They're going to face hostility. They're going to need the same sustaining presence that Jesus has known. So keep them in your name means keep them connected to you. Keep them connected to you. By the way, what about Judas? Judas was never connected. It says he's the son of perdition. Perdition means destruction. It's actually the same word that is used in Matthew 7, 13, when Jesus describes the broad way that leads to destruction. That's the way that that Judas was on. Judas did what he wanted and, as a result, became a tool of Satan. In verses uh, 20 through 23, now this is a prayer for us, and it's still focusing on this oneness concept, being connected to Father. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Let's uh, note a few things in this section. Jesus knew his mission would be a success, that the 11 would stay on mission and that directly or indirectly a vast multitude from all the nations would come to him. So he is now praying in this, in this uh, high priestly prayer, he is now praying for this group to which we belong. On the night in which he was betrayed, he's praying for everyone in this room who has found eternal life in Jesus Christ. He's praying for us. And he prays that we might experience oneness, which is basically that we would have a robust connection to Father, that's what he wants us to experience this is a oneness that is a shared life connection between us and father and from this essential oneness radiate all the other unifiers you know we've talked about you know one heart one way one truth one life life is the center from which the others are produced uh You'll see this more next week when we. I'll show you that connection. But basically, when the light bulb comes on, that's what prepares us and fuels us to say, I love you. I want to do what you want me to do, and I'm going to follow your word. Those things flow from the fact that the light has been turned on. The closer we draw to him, the greater our unity with each other. In other words, the more this bulb is on in our heart, The more bright it shines, the more we're tapping into who Father is, the more we're gonna be able to be on the same page with one another. As we will learn in two weeks, oneness based on these seven principles with life in him at the center is the enemy's prime target. There is what the enemy wants to do is do everything he can to get this thing as dim as possible. He is even now, right now, he is working to erode our united and singular devotion to one heart, one way, one truth, and one life. That's his strategy. There's a result clause in this passage we just read. In verse 23, he says, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. To the extent that we shine bright, that the life that is in Father is shown in us the world sees something. They're concluding when they see this, Jesus really was sent here from God. This, this message is the real thing. And then this next one, I didn't really see this until a couple of years ago and then it just undid me. The world, when, when it sees this, a people and an individual who is drawing on the, the character and the life that is in Father, they actually conclude this. God loves them like he loves Jesus. I mean, I've, I've, I've struggled with that actually. And yet there it is in the word, so I believe it and I trust it. I don't understand it. But Jesus loves me, I mean, God the Father loves me like he loves his Son. And that's true of you too. I would have put myself in the, you know, the the lower echelon category. I mean, he loves Jesus, and then he kind of likes me. (laughs) But that's not what this passage says. And then get this, the world's going to know this. To the extent that we are burning bright light bulbs for Jesus, showing the light of Father, his character and who he is, the world looks at us and says, there is no way, there's no explanation for what I'm seeing, except Father loves this person like he loves his son. When what they see is something that's growing dimmer and dimmer, our credibility goes away. And the world says, you know what? I don't see anything in there that's any different. And that's what the enemy's strategy is. I want to introduce something to you called the overcomer protocol. I don't think I've used this phrase here, but I I need you to understand it. Um, If you uh, have ever done a study of the book of Revelation, then hopefully you understand that that book was written for the express purpose of training the body of Christ in how to implement the overcomer protocol. Hard times are coming. Even now they are coming. And if you don't understand and implement this overcomer protocol, you're not going to make it. This upper room discourse and this prayer are connected to the overcomer protocol, and I'm going to show you how. Now, in John 16, when he finished... His upper room discourse. The last sentence is what I want to quote to you. And so you can look it up in your Bible if you want to because everything I'm going to show you is coming right from there. And then he began the prayer that we're talking about. Here's what he says, John 16, all right? This is Jesus. He's just finished the upper room discourse. And then he says, These things I have spoken to you so that in, may, in me you may have peace. Which, by the way, is the one-piece intro that we'll look at in two weeks in the world you have tribulation but take courage I have overcome the world now what's Jesus saying here he's saying you're gonna have tribulation I realize that there's a division in the body of Christ over whether we're pre-trib or post-trib to me it's all immaterial in this respect Jesus says, you're going to have tribulation. That's the norm. You might have the great tribulation, or you might have the ramping up tribulation, or you might have the just, you know, point, uh, a five out of ten tribulation, but you're going to have tribulation. In the world, that is the norm. But take Courage. I have overcome, which is the word Nikao, the world. In other words, I have used a certain protocol by which I have been able to prevail. The world and our adversary have tried to squish me into the mold of what they want, and yet I have successfully defied them. I have overcome what the world is throwing at me, and you're going to face tribulation but take courage, I've shown you how this can be done. The verb translated overcome, Jesus says, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That's the same word that is used 14 times in 1 John and in the book of Revelation, and it describes us. Jesus says, I've given you a picture of what it means to overcome And then in the book of Revelation, he says, here's how the saints overcome. And in 1 John, he says, here's what you do to overcome, because the world is gonna throw at you tribulation, and you will not prevail if you don't use one heart, one way, one truth, one life, one mission, one peace, and one hope. Listen to this verse. And I'm going to take the light bulb here, and I'm going to just turn him off for a minute, okay? For whatever is born of God, that's when the light bulb comes on. Overcomes, that's nikao, our word, overcomes the world. And this is the victory. There's nikao again, the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We are living in a world that is going dark, but we are those who are getting brighter and brighter all the time. Why? Because we have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, what I want to do is just show you some churches in Revelation. I've been talking to you about, you know, one heart, one life, one way, one truth, I want to see if you can observe the failures of some churches in Revelation. Which one of these principles did they violate? So here's Revelation 2.4. He says to the church in Ephesus, You have left your first love. Which one did they blow? How did they blow it? You can talk. One heart. Here's Thyatira. Thyatira. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. Where do they mess up? <laughs> yeah, you kind of know what I'm doing, so yes. Yeah, this church was basically saying, I want you, this woman Jezebel was saying, I want you to kind of reimagine our faith. Yes, yes, I, I know we've talked about Jesus is the, the, the way, but let's just think about different ways we can do this. Pergamum, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Basically this was the church that's saying find your truth. I mean Jesus and Balaam and Nicolaitans and just you know find your truth and they blew the one truth. And then Sardis, you have a name that you're alive but you are dead. Which one did they blow? One life. They have a name that they're alive. If you were to ask people on the street, they would say, man, the worship at Sardis is off the chart, it's so good. But it was fake because this was a dead church. The light bulb wasn't on. These core principles are not merely nice suggestions. They are matters of the utmost importance, but here is the promise in Revelation. He who overcomes, who uses these principles, will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let's take a sneak peek at this future for just a minute. This is Revelation 22, three, and five, three through five. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bond will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. The presence of God is gonna be so full That's all the light we need as we bask in it and draw from it. I love this. The spirit and the bride say, come, can't wait. And let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who's thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. This life source, which is like water and like light, is available. It's available right now. To anyone who wants it. How? Several passages. Here's one, John 5. This is earlier in the book of John. Jesus says, truly, I truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That means gets connected and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. You might say, well, you know, I read my Bible a lot and I come to church. Jesus says in John 5, 39 through 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. It's not about even reading the Bible, although I highly recommend it. But it's about allowing the word to to become the the instrument by which I come and surrender to Jesus. The woman at the well was attempting to fill a void in her life, but the more she tried to fill it, the more empty she felt. And she had an encounter with Jesus. He said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life, and there Jesus is using water and a well for the same kind of metaphor or illustration as i 'm using the light bulb. So I have to ask the question now we 're going to talk about in a few weeks you know how can you keep your light bulb burning bright? But right now, what I want to talk about is how do you get your light bulb on because I am reasonably confident that in this room there may be some in whom the life of Christ is not vibrant and alive. The light bulb is not on. How do you receive the gift of life? It's very simple. Uh, In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners. I knew that when I was five. I was confronted with my sinfulness. And I also knew the penalty because I was a good church going kid, and they talked about the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you receive a gift, you unwrap it, you open it, and you pull it out. The way that you unwrap the gift of eternal life is by faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, one Savior. He's the only one. What I'd like you to do is be bow your heads. And you can, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want you to pray for anyone in this room who doesn't. Meanwhile, if you have never prayed to receive Jesus Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Let's pray. You can pray a prayer just like this. You can use my words. You can, in your heart, repeat them but it needs to be something that is coming from your heart. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner and I know that I deserve eternal separation from you. But I also know Jesus that you came and died in my place on the cross. What I deserved, you received. And you did that because you love me. I am choosing in this moment to accept what you have done for me on the cross as payment for my sins. And I name you as my savior. And I invite you right now to come and live inside of me for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.